Welcome to Before They Change the World, where we explore the minds and ideas of inspiring individuals working on impactful projects before they change the world. In this episode, we have Anna Sulzer, who was a systems engineer of Perifas, which in 2022 developed a guidance, navigation, and control for the recovery of a sounding rocket using a parafoil system. We talked about the initial idea and struggles during the development, as well as the glorious flight demonstration at the European Rocketry Challenge. This was a fascinating conversation, and if you're into rockets, aerospace, and drones, you're in for a treat. So let's dive into it. Welcome, Anna, on board the Before the Change the World podcast. So I want to start with what the Project Perifest is about. Like, what is it in your own terms, and why is it important to bring back a rocket using a guided system? All right, so let's get started straight away. So Perifas is basically what we call the guided recovery system. So it uses a steerable parachute to return a rocket after it's reached its apogee, which is the highest point in the flight trajectory. And basically it's a student's project with ETH Zurich together as a focus project, as you mentioned before, in collaboration with ARIS, which is the Academic Space Initiative Switzerland. And our goal for the whole project was to design, build, test and launch the Skydive Recovery System. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, as you said, bring back our rocket. I think the official name was Guidance, Navigation and Control for the Recovery of a Sounding Rocket. I think that was the official name. (laughs) And why is it important to bring back? Well, first of all, I think reusability is an important issue these days. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you don't just want to fly a rocket and then crash it (laughs) and build the next one for next year. So this is one of the main reasons. Um, But you could use a regular parachute for it. However, if you go to higher altitudes, you'll also experience more drift Mm -hmm. during your descent Mm -hmm. because with with a regular round parachute, you're basically just drifting wherever the wind takes you. And this can be a few hundred meters. And if you go to higher apogees than we do at the moment, it can be even more. So it's basically making the whole process of this reusability and and recovery process faster and easier. Mm -hmm. Because also, for example, if you have experiments on board that have to be recovered quickly after launch, it's nice if you can access them super easily if your rocket is close by. Right. Exactly. Okay. This is why it's important. (laughs) (laughs) That's super cool. And yeah, I want to ask because you mentioned this started as an ETH project. The focus projects are the main thing that ETH DMAF department pushes forward and really motivates students to do it, do them. And so this was a focus project. Mm -hmm. But how did it start? Like how, like did Aris come up with the idea and then you pitched it to the professor and then the professor liked it? Or was it more of a back, like a backwards, like professor wanted to do something like this and then Aris was a perfect one to do it? Yes, yeah, so for this, I can only know as much as I was told because I wasn't part of the first year when it was actually initiated. Mm-hmm. Um, however, so Aris has, was founded in 2017, that's an association. Mm-hmm. And we also came out with a 10 year plan. And in that 10 year plan, very ambitiously, we said that we want to go into orbit within mm-hmm. 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. And for these 10 years, we broke it down to like smaller milestones. And one of those was also dis- designing and, and implementing the guided recovery system, because it's, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, useful for higher altitude launches, mm-hmm. as we see in industry now. 
so yeah, this was always in Aris's plan, and and once it became sort of relevant, I think Aris initiated it mm-hmm. uh, with ETH Zurich as their main partner, mm-hmm. um, and then they got Professor Zalinger on board, mm-hmm. and together they established this focus project. Okay. With yeah, with ETH. Yeah. So like then. Were you like the one of the few people who are recruited or how, how did it work? Like, did you apply to the project and you got selected out of applicants? Yeah, exactly. So as it works with focus projects, you sign up mm-hmm. or yeah, you apply really with like a motivational letter and everything. Mm-hmm. And then you put in three projects that you're interested in with a ranking as well. So yeah, I put in the guided one as my number one choice. I was yeah. really interested. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then afterwards you get interviewed by some of them. It's it's dependent on the professor, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, some professors, they just look at your application materials. Some like to hold interviews or most of them do. Yeah. So I was interviewed by a team of RS members mm-hmm. uh, from the past project. And I think there was also someone present from Professor Zellinger's group, but I don't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it's basically like applying for a job. <laughs> so like, how, how was the team organized? Like, so you got a news that you got selected and then you had a team members, like, well, what's the process like for such focus project? Like, where do you start? Like, do you have a meeting at first and wh- what kind of milestones do you set? Like, how did you kickstart the whole project? Yeah, so it's dependent on the project again, so I can just talk for ARIS because um, ARIS as an association sort of gives an overall structure to your whole project, which is actually really helpful because mm-hmm. I have a few friends that were in different projects and it's, it's, it was more difficult for them to establish like mm-hmm. the first few milestones and everything. Mm-hmm. So for us, we were a team of 10 people. We were eight ETH students and mm-hmm. then two from ZHB. Yep. And then there were six more alumni coming on later, but that was not part of the focus project. Mm-hmm. And basically, we were given a budget from Professor Zellinger directly. That was a cash budget. And we had sort of an overall idea how the year should look like. So at RS, what we usually follow is the SDR, PDR, CDR, and then readiness review yep. structure. Mm-hmm. So SDR stands for System Definition Review, PDR for preliminary design review, mm-hmm. CDR for critical design review. Yeah. So that's when you have your full design and then the readiness review for testing and flying. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also widely used in, in the industry as well. Mm-hmm. And so this basically gave us a few milestones until when do we have to know or be at what stage of our technical development. Mm-hmm. And we were also given feedback uh, throughout those review and that review structure, which was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, basically you show up on the first day yep. at the kickoff yep. and you get to know your team members. The first time. For the first time, oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. I think we had a little barbecue pre-kickoff once, <laughs> but that's the first time that you meet officially really. Yeah. And yeah, you, you have the budget and the team members from, from Phoenix mm-hmm. basically gave us a short introduction about like what guided recovery actually is, how it works <laughs> and what we have to define. And then we came up with like a role definition mm-hmm. at first where we discussed who should take over what role. Yep. So I was a systems engineer mm-hmm. and I also worked on the controls a little bit just mm-hmm. as my second technical role. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards it basically kicked off and we tried to figure out how to organize money, how to organize yep. ourselves. Mm-hmm come up with meeting structures, and yep. um, read into all the material that we have. So this is sort of the, the first week that you have. And then until SDR, which is System Definition Review, you try and like line out your project really. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you really start on the technical development. Gotcha. So you just mentioned the project Phoenix. Mm-hmm. That is the project that was before Perifas mm-hmm. that actually also did a guided recovery at Aris. So 
what like what was the biggest like difference that you actually tried to um, implement from the successor project in Perifus? Yeah, so so Phoenix was it was uh, like the proof of concept like the gadget recovery works, and they also established all the contacts, uh, mm -hmm. came up with the whole design idea, mm -hmm. and then for us we really wanted to go one step further, which mm -hmm. is why in the first week actually we decided that we also want to launch um, our guided recovery system. It was yeah. initially not planned to do so by mm -hmm. the group and by Aris, mm -hmm. but the team was really strongly set on that goal to launch the system. Yeah. So we could take over all the ideas, the basic concepts, sponsors, that's actually really important if you already have some context established, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, parachute idea, but we basically we had to size it down, reduce mass, so it's actually integrable into a rocket. Yeah. We had to come up with the separation system, mm -hmm. which we can talk about later. Yeah. And yeah. Also further develop the whole software. We we came up or we wanted to integrate it in a different software environment. Mm -hmm. So we basically had to rewrite everything yeah. and adapt it. But mm -hmm. yeah. Alright. But but cool. So so from that, like I want to call, come back to the initial start. So you were guided by the Phoenix team. You had an initial meeting kickoff, and then what was the like the first big thing that like team tried to achieve? Like what was the first crucial like milestone that you were striving towards, and what was like the timeline for that? Like for the system definition review, for example. Like what yeah. was the timeline for that? That was just a few weeks, if I remember correctly. So we started off. You know, mid-end September when the semester started, I think it's around the 20th of mm -hmm. September usually. And then, if I remember correctly, the SDR is like right at the beginning of October. So that's oh. really only very, very few weeks. Yeah. And you have a small presentation where you present the roles, mm -hmm. the budget, and yeah, the, the, the technical overview over the system. Mm -hmm. Now, as we were given all the work that Phoenix has done on it, we were actually a bit lucky in the technical sides of things we could establish. Yeah. Not easily, but it was doable because you have a rough idea what the system should look like. And mm -hmm. it was clear for us to continue that way yeah. just because it seems, well, yeah, it was promising. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we decided to continue down that road. It's actually quite hard to come up with a budget in the first place. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, you can base it on the, the predecessor project, but because we had a few more systems coming up that were related to launch as well, mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that was definitely a big thing. And then we had some changes in our team as well. Yeah. Just because if you, some, I mean, the acceptances for the focus projects, they actually go out before you write your exams. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't pass your exams in summer, you actually get sort of kicked out again, which oh, is, okay. yeah, a bit rough. Yeah. <laughs> and so we actually had, uh, I think, three changes in total. And then with like people coming in like last minute, mm -hmm. all great people. Yeah. And yeah, it worked out well eventually, but it yeah. was a bit chaotic throughout the first few weeks. Gotcha. But it worked out well, and I think everybody was happy with their role. You, you have a great blog in Ari's website. In this first complete assembly blog post, you first did an assembly of the whole system. What was it actually about? So basically, the rocket is very modular. Mm -hmm. So you have what we call different bulkheads, which are like disks, basically, that are horizontally mounted within the rocket if mm -hmm. the rocket's standing up straight. Mm -hmm. And from there, you can then mount your racks. Mm -hmm. 
And on the racks you have then, for example, your different systems. So for example, your electronics or your actuators or everything. Mm -hmm. And then you have a hull over it, uh, which is carbon fiber. We call it the fairing. Mm -hmm. And this then gives the whole thing the, the aerodynamic structure and it also holds the different pieces together. Mm -hmm. So this is how RS rockets are usually designed. There are a few different types of how to do it, but RS does it with a bulkhead rack sort of situation. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. So basically, throughout the first semester, you design your whole system from a mechanical point of view mm -hmm. uh, until CDR. And then after CDR, you have a design phrase. And yeah, you design everything in CAD, and then you sort of hope that it all works out eventually, right? Because yeah. you send out the parts to your manufacturer and your sponsors and everything, mm -hmm. you get the parts back, and then you get really nervous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because once you hold them in your hands, and we had a few issues where like, the tolerances were a little bit off, okay. so we had to do like some sanding or so. Mm -hmm. Just gets you a little bit nervous, yep. trust me. <laughs> so yeah, in April 2022, we finally had all of our parts. Mm -hmm. We also had all of our carbon fairings and everything. We all produced them by ourselves yep. or manufacturing mm -hmm. and manufactured the carbon parts by ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we basically put the whole rocket together. Yep. just completely top down mm -hmm. which is not too easy because you also have to think really in what order you do everything okay. so for example we had cables coming from the steering actuators mm -hmm. that were right on top of the rocket like top bulkhead of the rocket right underneath the parachute yeah and the cables basically they went through three different sections mm -hmm. uh, to the electronics rack mm -hmm. and that was just how it was designed just the only way that really worked out for us mm -hmm. And so you really have to think about in what order you put everything together and, okay. and come up with a whole procedure. Yeah. And that's when we tested assembly. Gotcha. So it's like basically the first time. And does it include like the motor section as well? Like, or is mm -hmm. it just uh, electronics? So we had electronics. Then we had a separation system with mm -hmm. the pressurized CO2 to yeah. separate the rocket. Then we had the actuator section with the main deployment mechanism and yeah. the steering actuators. Yeah. And then finally the parachute section and the yeah. nose cone on top. Gotcha. And what's like the order, like starting from the top to bottom? Nose cone, parachute, actuator, CO2, and then electronics. Gotcha. And then in the back, you would usually have whatever concerns your motor mm -hmm. or other systems. Yeah. And I mean, we always knew that we wanted to launch it. However, it wasn't seen as like part of our project really. Okay. And we didn't have the manpower to do it ourselves. It. So what we had was we had six more alumni people coming in from mm -hmm. Project Euler. Mm -hmm. And they helped us manufacture basically another Euler fin section that can hold the motor and everything. Yeah. But for the drop test, we just used like a dummy fin section mm -hmm. to simulate the drag really. Yeah. And the additional weights, it was just steel and MDF fins that we put on there. Nice. As like a very prototypey version. Yeah. <laughs> so like, so what I understood is that you, your team was responsible for building the whole, whole rocket. It's like, so like you had to build also the like fin section mm -hmm. and so that you kind of let the alumni do it for you. They helped us. They helped. You. Yeah, it was it was it was a team effort mm -hmm. eventually. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it was also more established throughout the summer. So after the official focus project, because it yeah. ends after the rollout sometimes. Right. Yeah. But they definitely helped a lot. Gotcha. So so it was like not just guidance, but you actually had to think about the whole structure. Like the whole mm -hmm. your team was not just working on the parachute part. No, no, it was so everything uh, really. Yeah, that's that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of work. <laughs> so. Afterwards, you had a so-called cargo flight. Mm -hmm. Why did you call it cargo flight, actually? 
So you know how helicopters transport cargoes sometimes, just mm -hmm. on their long line? Yeah. And it was the same idea because their rocket okay. was just on that long line, transported okay. around, but it was never actually dropped. Okay. And <laughs> so that's a good thing. Here, like, he verified like the structure integrity, telemetry, and also the separation system. Mm -hmm. And that's like a big test because you're involving helicopter and all the different subsections and like what what do you remember from that like test i mean cargo flight test mm -hmm. like what were the challenges and what were like memorable moments yeah so that was our first test with the, in collaboration with the military so mm -hmm. maybe for your listeners we conducted several or all our drop tests are basically conducted in collaboration with the swiss military mm -hmm. uh, they lifted our system with a helicopter and then dropped it yeah. and because last year they actually had, so Phoenix, mm -hmm. I mean, Perifus is already last year, Phoenix, so two <laughs> years ago, they had some issues, yeah, with their telemetry and generally their electronic system when it was airborne, mm -hmm. I think because of vibrations and everything, oh. as far as I understand and remember. Mm -hmm. But so the military had this very good idea that we could just conduct a cargo flight over the airfield of Dübendorf, which mm -hmm. is just a very small effort for both parties yeah. and we can actually yeah demonstrate that our electronics are functional when airborne and our telemetry works yeah so yeah that was our very first big test yeah apart from the, the technical point of view we also were able to test all our procedures mm -hmm. uh, because we also in contact via radio with the pilots at all times okay. and sort of coordinate so that's also not too easy mm -hmm. But yeah, and also again, the assembly, the full yeah. assembly with the whole thing, mm -hmm. including everything. It was a really exciting day. Yeah. Really exciting, a bit stressful, but eventually it all worked out. Mm -hmm. It was really cool. Yeah. And we tested all sorts of things via telemetry, triggered all sorts of states in our software. Wow. And very successful, actually. Oh. We we're super happy. That's cool. That was the first big milestone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was written that like when the the nose cone popped, yeah. the separation where it was like a big moment. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was our first separation in air triggered via telemetry. You brought up uh, about the separation system, and there's a lot of mention about this in the blog post. What were like the as as you said like the first the design like you said it's like CO two cartilage based like but. For just for listeners who don't have much context, like how, how does it work to separate the... Yeah. It's a funny side note, but the guy who was responsible for the blog post mm -hmm. was also our separation guy. Oh, okay. <laughs> so maybe okay. that's why it's mentioned very yeah, often. it's very thoroughly mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Coincidence? I don't know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, separation, basically, if you imagine the rocket throwing a scent, it's aerodynamical, it has the nose cone, so the, the tip of the rocket, mm -hmm. and then a fully closed system basically, right? Mm -hmm. But in order to deploy a parachute, you have to create an opening. Yeah. And this is what we call the separation. Mm -hmm. Now there are a few different ways how to do it, but um, the system that we've used at RS is basically by ejecting the nose cone. Mm -hmm. So the nose cone is just put on and held in or basically just stabilized, not even really yeah. held in mm -hmm. by these shear pins. Mm -hmm. There are two pins and they basically break at a specific force. Mm -hmm. And so by pressurizing our parachute section, which sits right underneath that nose cone, mm -hmm. we can push it out mm -hmm. um, and break the shear pins. Got it. So yeah, for this, we use pressurized CO2 yeah. that we stored in car two cartridges. Mm -hmm. um, two is just really for redundancy. Yeah. And then we had solenoid valves that mm -hmm. we opened at Apogee, yeah. so the highest point, and they released the CO2 pressurizing that section, mm -hmm. break the shear pins, nose cone is out. Got it. And then afterwards, the parachutes can deploy. 
and so like basically you're just filling the system with CO2 until it just pops, like the shear pins yes. break and then exactly. the whole system. So you have to design it in a way that your shear pins are the weakest link. <laughs> gotcha. and, and so like, does that mean that actually the electronics part is exposed to the high pressure CO2 and the whole thing is full of CO2? And not really. Um, so we did, or we tried to basically make it leak proof as much as we could. Mm -hmm. That's obviously never going to be perfect, so mm -hmm. there was probably a bit of leakage, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, exactly. So the the electronic section is three sections underneath the pressurized section, mm -hmm. so there was probably not a m much leakage. We measured temperature on our rack as well and it never really dropped, you know, oh. the CO2 gets cold. Okay. But we were a bit nervous for actuators at first, yep. because yeah, if you have cold CO2 yeah. and they sit right underneath the parachute section which gets pressurized mm -hmm. and we couldn't really put any sealant there because you have the holes for the steering lines and they have to be right. open you know right. otherwise yeah. you can't steer mm -hmm. but because the whole process is quite quick mm -hmm. there isn't that much leakage happening through okay. these very small holes oh, wow. just because it's yeah it's yeah. very quick <laughs> the expansion and is super quick and, and then as you said it gets very cold yeah because it's liquid co2 mm -hmm. and yeah if it evaporates the whole it, it cools everything down, really. Wow. Yeah. And so, like, you said it's like kind of a, one of the widely used design, but like, why did you choose this approach other than other separation mechanisms? Because it was, or it has been developed by Aris for a few years now. Mm -hmm. So not exactly in this configuration, but we first started off, I think, with black powder separation. Mm -hmm. This is very commonly used. Mm -hmm. Black powder works always. But it's the same principle, right? You, you have an expansion of your air, mm -hmm. uh, which creates a pressure inside your tubing mm -hmm. and it checks the nose cone or whatever part. Yeah. And then, but yeah, black powder, it's very dirty. You have to clean yeah. everything afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you have explosives within a section that's your parachute section and you yeah. don't really want your parachutes catch fire. Good so, point, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it was just not, we weren't quite happy with it yeah. a few years back. Um, mm -hmm. So I think Euler was the first or a Heidi, I don't remember, it was the first or second iteration of the rocket, mm -hmm. where they switched to CO2, yeah. but they had the so-called Hawk system, a commercial off the shelf, mm -hmm. where you basically, you puncture a CO2 cartridge and oh, open it that way. Yes. But that way you, you need a new cartridge every time. And I think yeah. also the cartridges aren't meant to be punctured in that way. Okay. So it was quite reliable. Mm -hmm. Uh, it worked, but it still wasn't ideal. Yeah. And then for Picard, for the first time, we started with the solenoid valves. Wow. And and afterwards, yeah, we continued it. So Helvetia, the yeah. rocket from last year, but yeah. only this year, everybody's been using that system. Wow. And it's been, yeah, progressing more and more, which is also why we chose it. We yeah. considered doing a mechanical separation system mm -hmm. that doesn't use liquefied CO2. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, we had so many ambitions in the project mm -hmm. and, and so many parts to work on that at some point we had to say, well, we, we have to take over concepts from previous yeah. RS rockets. Yeah. We cannot reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. um, however, it was now developed as part of a thesis. So maybe oh. next year's rocket. That's cool. We'll have a mechanical separation yeah. system. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so like this CO2, like I thought what you said was like you have a cartilage and you pop it, but it's not true. So you actually fill in the liquid CO2 before mm -hmm. launch. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. So it's a refillable cartridge. Okay. And then we have these big gas bottles. Yeah. that you can buy and you have a filling adapter and you fill it up that's why you have to hand valve on it so oh, you can close it and yeah. carry it around okay. so for a test we also yeah. for example we, we heated the cartridges mm -hmm. or we cooled them down prior to a test just to see if temperature yeah. makes any difference mm -hmm. 
And then you attach it to your solenoid valves, which yeah. are normally closed. Yeah. And then you can open the hand valves. Gotcha. And the solenoid valves is actually what stops the CO2 from ex coming out. Wow. So like, yeah, like in the blog, as you said, because <laughs> the person was the separation <laughs> guidance. I mean, but there was a lot of like 25 tests conducted mm -hmm. and you said like you varied the temperature and all the different parameters and well like through these tests like what did you actually learn like what was like the finding that you had so basically from the test the initial test we conducted to really understand the system but the separation is really a very crucial step in mm -hmm. your whole mission yeah and we really set our goal to understand the system completely okay so what we did was yeah as i mentioned before we tested for example the, the influence of temperature mm -hmm. so we test during april in Wichlin, mm -hmm. in the swiss mountains it can be quite cold you mm -hmm. know and we also go out in the, not the desert, but in the military field of Portugal. We can be yeah. 30 degrees plus, right. you know. Mm -hmm. So we have a wide range of, of environmental conditions. And we sort of wanted to test them. So the temperatures, then we also had different leakage, leakages mm -hmm. or just openings yeah. within the system. Mm -hmm. So we intentionally left like, I don't know, an, a 10 millimeter hole in the bulkhead and see if it would still wow. separate or if the leakage is faster, mm -hmm. things like that. Wow or if because we have two separation cartridges for redundancy yeah. if one still separates that's also really important otherwise yeah. it's not really redundant mm -hmm. things like that and then wow. actually one of our main findings was that the temperature does make a little bit of a difference okay. so what's interesting is if you for example if you conduct a separation test mm -hmm. your cartridge cools down right because yeah. of the expanding co2 mm -hmm. and then if you fill it again you actually can get I mean, you can get actually more CO2 in it because it's cold. But then afterwards, if you right away conduct another test, mm -hmm. it doesn't ex expand as quickly. Oh. So your separation or a separation wouldn't work sometimes. So we're like, oh, the cartridge has to, like, it's the best thing if you want a lot of CO2 is to yeah. fill the cartridge, empty it. So yeah. the cartridge is cold, mm -hmm. fill it, then you get a lot of CO2 in it, and then warm it up prior oh, to okay. separation, for example. Yeah. So that was a really good finding actually mm -hmm. for us. I mean, with the nature of a launch day, you would always have your cartridge being kind of warm right. at the point of launch because it's yeah. going to be in the rocket for a while. Right. So that was good to see. But now yeah. we understand that this actually has an influence yeah. and we tested it with that various influences. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, afterwards we were quite sure that our system works that way. Yeah. Um, and also that a little bit of leakage is okay and the system yeah. still separates. In the blog post. The first drop test in mm -hmm. April 26th of 2022. Your goal was system identification. Mm -hmm. Could you tell what the goal of the system identification is? So basically a little bit of background. So for the guided descent, really, mm -hmm. this, the guided descent is completely autonomous, right? Mm -hmm. So we have developed what we call guidance controller and state estimation, mm -hmm. as well as a simulations environment. Mm -hmm. Now the guidance sort of tells you where to go, what direction, like, like trajectory wise, mm -hmm. and then a controller controls towards that trajectory, yeah. and the state estimation is some filtering and mm -hmm. giving you the, the data that you actually need. Yeah. But in order to test all of this, we also had our model and the simulations environment, right? Right. And this model, so we had different ones, we had uh, three degrees of freedom, four degrees of freedom, and six degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. And all of them have some unknown parameters or aerodynamic coefficients mm -hmm. that you can only really that are 
they're very specific to your system yeah. so you can only really find them during a flight mm -hmm. you cannot get them or you can get a rough estimate from literature maybe yeah. and then that's where you conduct system identification mm -hmm. so those are flights where we had specific inputs that we gave to the system so mm -hmm. it was pull the right line like 20 centimeters mm -hmm. and the left line 10 centimeters etc yeah. etc mm -hmm. so you know the inputs that you give your system and you basically look at the data what you or how your system responds to those inputs that you mm -hmm. give it and with those real life data you can then tune your model and your simulation to be more accurate to your real life system mm -hmm. that's the idea and yeah those flights are system identification flights with the predefined inputs mm -hmm. um, and you try to fly all sorts of maneuvers yeah. so that you have your system response to every possible combination that you can probably get right. and then your system identification will be better so yeah that was our first flight yeah. it went well in a sense that it steered itself mm -hmm. the main parachute deployed that was already a big moment because when yeah. you see your main parachute deployment for the first time and then mm -hmm. it steers itself we were so happy about it mm -hmm. We were a bit unlucky because it landed in a tree. <laughs> right, I wanted to bring that up. Uh, so the problem with the system identification is really, mm -hmm. it is a predefined, like says, a predefined set of inputs, right? Mm -hmm. And it basically just goes through them. It doesn't care where you actually start or like no. after main deployment, you have an initial heading mm -hmm. and it just starts from there. Right. It doesn't matter if it's north, south, whatever, it just goes from there. Mm -hmm. And we try to come up with, with a set of inputs that have a high chance of landing in like the good part of the valley where okay. it's easy to recover. Yeah. But that was not entirely possible mm -hmm. because you just have like a huge, a wide range of possible landing zones right. and the valley is super narrow yeah and it just landed in this really tall tree <laughs> it was like really one of the last ones it was oh, no. i don't know like maybe 50 meters from the end of the forest it oh, was no. really we're like oh it's gonna land on that oh. little meadow over there yeah and then it just hit the tree oh and that was also very stressful because mm. we went there after after the flight to recover yeah. and it was really i think the the lowest part of the rocket the whole rocket is maybe three and a half meters yeah. in test configuration mm -hmm. and the lowest part was like that the height of your head oh. so like 180 over ground yeah and the rest was just up there you know and at some point people were really like oh we have to cut off that parachute because we yeah. cannot get the parachute out of all this things you know mm -hmm. and the parachute is one of the most expensive parts of our mm -hmm. whole system we really thought oh shit yeah. first first drop test and we're already gonna lose the first yeah. parachute yeah. <laughs> but eventually we were able to to sort of yank it out of the tree we got it all down yeah in one piece and then we went to the the parachute facility that they have at Dubendorf and asked them if this is still safe oh. to use and they told them it was totally fine. Wow. So we were actually able to reuse that parachute for yeah. our whole entire drop test up until maiden launch even. Nice. Luckily. Yeah, so you just <laughs> yanked it out. Right? Yeah. And, and wasn't it like super heavy? Like how did you even manage to yank it out? I think I think they took off the lowest part of the rocket. So the lowest part of the rocket is yeah. this dummy weight, right? Yeah. Which is, what was it, 20 kilos or something? Mm -hmm. So you were able to take that part off, which okay. was already, yeah, 20 kilos off. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> and then the rest, yeah, I mean, we were nine guys and myself, yeah. so we had nine guys <laughs> to yank it out. <laughs> that's so fun. All right. So after that, like after actually just less than a week after, you had another second drop test on a May 2nd 
On this test, the helicopter was causing so much wind and the ground control station's monitor fell down and you had to find another monitor in that mm. valley. Like, how did you make that work? I was so curious about this. Yeah, um, that was very unfortunate again. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, so the, the helicopter came in super low this time and they mm -hmm. landed on a different spot that they usually would, yeah. which, was, which was in front. And I mean, the helicopter is really big and it creates like eight tons of downwash. Wash. Yeah. And yeah, so our whole entire ground station was flipped, including also our Raspberry Pi and everything. Oh, no. And we had a five kilo weight holding down that ground, ground station, but because it was flipped, it also fell on our Raspberry Pi that powered oh. the whole ground station. Okay. So yeah, the monitor was broken as well as our Raspberry Pi. Oh no. And at first it was, I mean, it would have been easy to give up at that point, right? Yeah. But for some, for some reason, the team was super determined to make this work somehow. Mm -hmm. So some people raced off to Glarus yeah. <laughs> and just started like basically asking random tech companies and, and electronics shops if they could borrow a monitor. Whoa. Then at some point, we I think one of the guys, they went down to this town of Ilm yeah. and just knocked on people's doors if they have monitors, <laughs> Whoa. if we can borrow. And everybody looked a bit confused, but yeah. we were just like, well, what else are we going to do? Yeah. Um, and it wasn't, we weren't really able to fly back to Dudendorf because uh, you can't land during lunchtime. And I think mm. that was about the time that we had because we considered going back with the helicopter yeah. and getting it. Yeah. But th that wasn't really an option either. Wow. And eventually they got a monitor in Glavos from yes. I don't know. I don't know which company it was, but they gave them a monitor to borrow and yeah. a, they didn't even want any money or nothing. They yeah. just gave them a monitor and bring it back tonight, okay. yeah. please. Yeah. So we got that one, set it all up again. Our Raspberry Pi was still broken throughout mm. the whole time, right? So we disassembled the rocket to get the SD card of the, of the flight worthy Raspberry Pi that we have in the system. And then basically, I think copied over the SD card again because we had to like reflash everything. Yeah, I'm not too good with electronics, but no that's worries, what yeah. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, we had to disassemble Whoa. this whole rocket again Whoa. and really troubleshoot super quickly. We made it work somehow, and we actually conducted the drop test eventually. Yeah. Wow, kudos to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, okay, so uh, how long did it take, like, from the monitor falling to the ground till getting everything ready back up? An hour or two. An hour. And probably two so hours with all the driving. I'd say two hours probably until we were so full, okay. full on ready again. But yeah, quite quickly because you don't have to helicopter forever. Yeah, you have an amazing team. Yeah, the team, the team hours. effort was fantastic. Yeah. Okay, that was yeah, so <laughs> good team. <laughs> After all that setback, like this test was a very crucial one as well because you actually tested the flight controller mm -hmm. without the predefined system identification mm -hmm. script. Yeah, how did it how did it go like in your opinion? <laughs> well, it didn't go very well, mm -hmm. unfortunately. The system became unstable after just a few turns mm -hmm. uh, and we had to trigger what we call the safety spiral. Yeah. So the safety spiral is something that we implemented fortunately mm -hmm. uh, for if exactly for that reason really. Right. So it, the safety spiral is meant for if the software does not work for a bug or for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So it's not a hardware backup. And the safety spiral basically just gives a predefined input to the system, that motor position on the right motor, that motor position on the left motor, yep. and it goes to like a slightly braked right-hand spiral. Right. And then it just spirals to the ground. But mm -hmm. this is a very sta stable configuration for okay. the system. Yep. And then we can somehow contain where the system is gonna drift. Gotcha. <laughs> so it's not flying to Elm or whatever. Yep. 
Yeah, so we had to trigger that and then we were obviously very, very sad <laughs> that it didn't work because we were so excited for the whole thing. Yeah. And we looked at the data and it was probably the biggest learning experience mm -hmm. out of all mm -hmm. because yeah, our controller was just not tuned correctly and our system was not ready to to fly that sort of a closed loop control. Okay. Because well basically none of us have ever worked on real life controls. Mm -hmm. What the only thing that we knew were like the, the nice linear systems that we were given in control systems one and two. Mm -hmm. And you sort of you know, you put together a controller and it's nice, it gives you a nice graph on Simulink. Right. Um, but this was the actual first time that we worked on real life control for nonlinear systems. Yeah. And we just didn't really know how to assess a situation at that point mm -hmm. or prior to the drop test two. Mm -hmm. So after drop test one, we conducted the system identification with yeah. our data, mm -hmm. which wasn't as easy and straightforward as we imagined. Okay. Because just the data, you have to actually you have to do, edit the data a lot, you have to filter it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then yeah, real life data fitting is really not that easy. Mm -hmm. And then we got some sort of result out of it. Yeah. And our second drop test was just, I think, six days after the first one, so very, very mm -hmm. close. Mm -hmm. And then we were like, well, we have, we have some sort of aerodynamic coefficients that we yep. got out for our model. Yep. Seems fine, let's tune a controller and let's go. Yep. What we did not consider at that point is that there was a huge model mismatch between our model that we had, because the system identification wasn't very good, especially with that little amount of data that we had. Yep. And so there was a huge model mismatch compared to the real-life system. Mm -hmm. uh, the controller wasn't tuned very well, mm -hmm. and it saturated at all times. Mm -hmm. And we didn't spend enough time on the hardware-in-the-loop system as well. Mm -hmm. So hardware-in-the-loop is where we test with the sensors and with the actuators, but on ground yeah. prior to drop test. So we just didn't spend enough time to like see that yeah the controller saturates and everything. Yeah. So it was very naive mm -hmm. from all of us. We were super lucky that the system did not crash at all because of the safety spiral, mm -hmm. but it was a huge learning for our, all of us. Gotcha. And a real wake-up call that we really need to work on our assimilation and the model yeah. first, yeah. <laughs> which is why we dedicated, I think, three more flights towards system identification, yeah. two or three more flights. Yeah. And uh, so I just like was thinking to myself, because I fly drones and I actually am making RC paramotor now, mm -hmm. but why didn't you have like a mo like manual control, like mm -hmm. a transmitter to take over the control as a backup? Uh, we considered that mm -hmm. at the very beginning mm -hmm. instead of the safety spiral. Mm -hmm. I think it's not too easy. As soon as it gets into manual control mm -hmm. from a legal point of view, if something goes wrong, and I mean the system is heavy, it was around 30 to 50 kilos depending on the configuration. Mm -hmm. If we crash it on someone's house or something or hit a cow or I don't know. Yeah. From a legal point of view, it's going to be hard if someone actually manually guided it. Mm. And also, how do you, I mean, yeah, controlling a drone is probably going to be different than controlling a parachute-based mm -hmm. system of 50 kilos. Right. And none of us really had experience or how to even learn how to do it. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so we quickly sort of omitted that, gotcha. that idea. Okay. Yeah. Well, so I want to go into the guidance and navigation part more mm -hmm. deeply. So in the Focus Rollout video, you presented this three-phase landing procedure. Stabilization, figure eight descent or S-curve, and then the final approach. Mm -hmm. What was the reasoning behind this design? 
So this is the so-called tea approach because mm-hmm. it looks like a tea when you look from the top. Mm-hmm. And it was basically inspired from literature and as well from Phoenix. So Phoenix mm-hmm. sort of started it, yeah, and, and it was presented in some literature papers. Mm-hmm. And the idea is really that first you stabilize your system, I think it's quite straightforward. Yeah. And then afterwards the figure eight pattern is really that you want to lose your height your height mm-hmm. by still not drifting away too much. And so the figure eight, basically every turn that you fly is against the wind. Mm -hmm. And because you fly them against the wind, your turns are gonna be quite small and contained compared Mm -hmm. to if you fly them with the wind, your radius is gonna be huge. And so afterwards, yeah, you control your height quite, you lose your height quite controlled or Mm -hmm. in a controlled way. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards you want to have your landing approach is where you break out of that figure eight and have your final approach towards your intended point of landing. Right. That's sort of the idea. And uh, like, so was this like used in the test flights in some sense? No, actually, I mean, we flew it once during our very last drop test, mm-hmm. but not successfully, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So on our way towards the T approach, which is going to be our final thing, mm-hmm. uh, we developed a different guidance, which we call double wall. Mm-hmm which we flew successfully during a drop test and it was meant for both launches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically there you just have two walls and you fly a figure S between the two walls. So mm-hmm. once you reach the north or the south wall, for example, yeah. you just make a turn under yeah. 80 degrees, fly towards the other one. Mm-hmm. That one worked really well. So we thought, initially we thought we were ready for the T approach and to try it because it was all developed from a software point of view. Mm-hmm. However, we had to realize that flying towards specific points Mm -hmm. is actually a lot harder than flying towards walls because especially if you have winds yeah you sort of drift away Mm -hmm. and while you drift away your heading angle which is what we have as a reference for our controller so we we control the heading angle yeah your heading angle will change while you drift away so your reference the controller changes as well okay and i think just from the nature of the controller that we have to that we had developed, yeah. which also had a slight overshoot and everything. It, mm-hmm. it became unstable at some point. Okay. And so we just had to realize that flying towards specific points really needs some more thought into it. It's not something that you can just do on the go. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then because our maiden launch was coming up just like two weeks after yeah. that drop test, mm-hmm. we decided to go with the double wall, yeah. which has been tested successfully. Yeah. And we knew that was a safe option to fly. Gotcha. And uh, so, so in the double wall configuration, like, so let's say you're approaching the wall, mm-hmm. like, how, how does it decide, like, what the, br- like, how does it come down to the brake input computation? Like, how do you compute what brake inputs put based on that method? Uh, so basically, yeah, the, the, the guidance gives a reference to the controller, mm-hmm. which is, it's the heading, actually, it's not the yaw angle, mm-hmm. but it's the relative course angle, mm-hmm. which is basically the vector between your velocity in X and in Y direction. Mm-hmm. So your actual like heading velocity. Like where are you moving? Where are you the moving? Ground. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have a controller who controls towards that angle that we get, the mm-hmm. relative course angle. Mm-hmm. And depending on then just, yeah, general control systems, depending on how big your difference is between your intended heading and your actual heading, mm-hmm. you have a larger, smaller control input, mm-hmm. which is normalized between zero and one. Mm-hmm. And then from that, we calculate a motor position mm-hmm. for our actuator motors, yeah. which are then either pulling a line or releasing a line. 
yeah. the steering lines. So basically the course angle mm -hmm. uh, error directly like proportionally goes into like asymmetric braking. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so for the like simulation, like you said, you put a lot of effort into simulation for this system. Mm -hmm. Like how, how did it differ like compared to actual flight dynamics? So that's very hard to say mm -hmm. <laughs> because I don't have a quantitative measurement yeah. or anything. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So basically, yeah, we, we tried to get the simulation as closely to the to the real life as possible. Mm -hmm. What I think can say is that we we had the whole thing in ROS, mm -hmm. the robotic operating system. Yeah. And the good thing about that is that we actually flew the exact same code that we used for the simulation. Mm -hmm. Because you have everything in different nodes. Mm -hmm. And then depending on your launch file, if you're familiar with it, mm -hmm. uh, you either launch also your simulation mm -hmm. and then you use your simulation inputs and outputs and data. Yeah. Or you have the real life system in there and then you use the real life data for your whole control loop. Oh, got it. And then you also output real outputs mm -hmm. or inputs to the system. Yeah. So yeah, actually the, the whole control loop was always the same exact code in the simulation as well as in real flight. Mm -hmm. Which is why or which or the reason behind this is that that it's less prone to fail right. because of a software bug or something that you don't discover yeah. in your simulation. True. Yeah. yeah, that's I guess the point of simulation to mm -hmm. do exactly what you mm -hmm. had done in the real exactly. life. You said you used a parachute from the Skydiver company or something mm -hmm. like that. Like, uh, what was like a design, uh, I mean size, like, because you had to come up with uh, constraints for some mm -hmm. design parameters, like, did you actually design the parachute or also like what was like the design and size consideration like how did you choose the whole parameters for the parachute so the parachute yeah it's from paratech which mm -hmm. is yeah, skydivers manufacturer or skydiving parachutes manufacturer mm -hmm. and the size was sort of given because you have i think one size of parachute for a, a single person mm -hmm. Skydiver, mm -hmm. and that that's the size that we used because also our rockets are currently within the range of a, of a person's weight, okay. <laughs> which is very convenient. Yeah, that's very. Cool. So we have to look at different options for future rockets in case they get heavier. Gotcha. But uh, currently, this works out very well. Okay. And then the difference, I think, is in the attachment points, mm -hmm. really because it's not attached to a harness or anything but instead to the rocket but here we could take over the ideas from phoenix mm -hmm. we just make very few adaptations mm -hmm. and then also the manufacturer themselves they were super interested and very helpful in helping us mm -hmm. so together we sort of came up with how to attach it how to attach the steering line so that yeah. it still works out well figuring mm -hmm. out the the length of everything wow. so we also went for a visit up there Wow. with a prototype of our system to really determine how long the load lines and the steering lines have to be really. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. So you said, so they were kind of sponsor as well. Mm -hmm. And so, because in the third drop test, it's you mentioned in the blog that like the GoPro footage showed that there was a big slack in the brake mm -hmm. lines. And then after that flight, you actually had to adjust mm -hmm. that. So were they like the ones giving you advice for like you have to adjust it by this centimeter and like were they the ones who gave you the guidance on this? No, not on that specific topic. Mm -hmm. We had sort of what we thought were the zero points of, yeah. of the steering lines mm -hmm. where we don't have any input. But for whatever reason, 
it happens not to be that point so once we pulled the lines um, they had a little bit of slack on them so right. even if we gave a small input it still didn't actually influence the parachute right. in the sense that it would turn or anything yeah so what we did <laughs> was really basically matched up the timestamps from the gopro camera yeah. with the timestamps of our data yeah and we watched on the gopro camera at what point the the steering lines were taut Ooh, or just okay. about taut yeah. and then looked at what input and what motor position that yeah. corresponded to in our data oh, wow. and then set that motor position as the new zero point nice. kind okay. of wow. and that's how we shifted it that's very cool yeah <laughs> <laughs> so like what were like the properties of the system like what was the flight speed sink speed i don't know lift coefficients so for example lift of the rammer is quite dependent on various different things such mm -hmm. as the, the temperature or if you have any winds or the thermal properties of your air yeah. so i don't think there is a s one specific lift coefficient you have mm -hmm. several aerodynamic coefficients that i mentioned okay. before for the modeling yeah. but what you have is or what is quite specific to your parachute is the so-called glide ratio yeah. which is the fraction between or the fraction of your forward velocity over your sinking velocity mm -hmm. uh, so our parachute had a glide ratio of around two yeah. More or less, again, it's dependent on the temperature and the winds and everything. Mm -hmm. So we had a forward velocity of approximately 11 meters per second, downwards mm -hmm. of around 5, yeah. for a 50 kilo rocket, which was the configuration that we flew at Uruk. Got it. The um, final launch. So that's pretty fast. I mean, I thought it was going to be more like 5 meters per second, but 11 is quite fast. Like Yeah, with 50 yeah. kilo, it goes quite quickly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so. I want to kind of touch down on that point, your UROC, because that was really like phenomenal. Like you actually launched it and you actually guided back to ground safely. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like how was it? Like in, it was in Portugal, right? Yeah. And uh, you were competing against 25 other team members from around the Europe. Mm -hmm. Like what was the atmosphere like there? Yeah, so Europe stands for European Rocketry Challenge. It was really fun. As you mentioned, 25 different teams from mm -hmm. all across Europe. Mm -hmm. um, it was a fantastic experience. We had some very stressful moments. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, you have to pass through your launch readiness review and, and yeah. everything at the beginning, where mm -hmm. you have judges coming in, questioning everything about your system, really. Yeah. And you have to have reasoning for every design choice you've yeah. ever made. Mm -hmm. So that, that was very, very stressful hours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then we also actually had to postpone our launch. Oh. We were actually meant to launch on the very first launch day. Mm -hmm. However, on the night before, during our final checks on our electronics, we realized that suddenly our commercial flight computer detected Apogee right when it was turned on. So it oh. would initiate separation once it's turned on, okay. which is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and we tried to troubleshoot, but eventually at, at 10 p.m. we just had to make the call to scrap the launch for the day. Mm. Because even if you work through the night, you'll have hire team members and, and there's no point to it yeah so let's not yeah let's not go overboard mm -hmm. sleep well sleep over it take off a day not take off take the day and, yeah. and troubleshoot mm -hmm. and then launch on the second launch day which is what we did yeah. and we found some electric component on our boards that had like a weird interference oh. and yeah it took us all day pretty much to oh. <laughs> figure it out but we figured it out yeah but it wasn't it was a problem that hasn't occurred beforehand yeah unfortunately mm -hmm. But afterwards, we were good to launch, yep. and we did. It went really well. Mm -hmm. uh, we had main deployment at Apogee, unfortunately, so at the highest point. Yeah. Usually, we have 
a smaller parachute first coming up, which just slows the whole rocket down. It flips yeah. it into yeah vertical position mm -hmm. so that the parachute can then deploy it 900 meters above ground. Mm -hmm. uh, but the yeah the rammer came out immediately. We were a bit nervous at first. What's going to happen? Yeah. But we were like, well, it's up three kilometers. Let's see what happens first, right yeah. before triggering the safety spiral. Mm -hmm. So we did, and it just went into its double wall guidance as yeah. it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. And instead of a one minute performance, it did a ten minutes performance. Nice. <laughs> which we weren't we weren't that unhappy about. Yeah. <laughs> Not gonna lie, it was yeah. beautiful <laughs> because there wasn't any wind. It also looked super nice. Yes very nice graphs out of it yeah. and then in post analysis we obviously looked at why why did the parachute deploy really yeah and the reason was that one of our flight computers so one of our flight computers is connected to our com our custom uh, electronics that mm -hmm. we developed for the guided recovery mm -hmm. uh, and then the other system or the redundant system is usually connected to to the commercial off-the-shelf flight computer mm -hmm. uh, and for main deployment, we have this mechanism with two servo arms yeah. that move down for main deployment. Okay. And what we didn't realize is, or realized too late, is that the commercial flight computer actually holds the servo arm actively on a position. Oh. And we had just zero as an input there, you know, zero position. Mm -hmm. The zero position was actually downwards. Yeah. So at, during the whole flight, it held the position actively downwards. Mm -hmm. And then this is like deployment state of the servo arm so as soon as the drop parachute deployed had a little bit of drag on it it pulled the main parachute out because oh. it was already in like deployment configuration oh. and it was a really stupid mistake in hindsight yeah. it's just one parameter that was set to zero degrees okay. position instead of 180 degrees position oh. which is why it deployed early yeah. we didn't test this specifically because during our drop test we we only used like our custom system yeah. and then we only flew the commercial off-the-shelf like computer at europe because you right. have to fly one yeah mm. okay yeah so really unfortunate so mm -hmm. my message is test every single <laughs> yeah. every single part of your system in all sorts of configuration mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's always the small things that fail your system in that sense i mean yeah it still came back in one piece we were all very stoked yeah but yeah, we would have gotten a few more points out of it for the competition if it deployed at 900 meters. Gotcha. Also, you actually get a point if you deployed at 900. I mean, as you wanted. This, yeah, exactly. This you get points for the whole flight gotcha. and how well it goes. Because there were no other teams doing guided recovery. What are points there? Yeah, so actually we didn't get any extra points for guided recovery, which mm -hmm. was a bit sad. So whether or not it was a guided recovery or a round parachute, you would get the exact amount of points for that mission that we flew. Yeah. But yeah, obviously because it deployed early, we got a few points deducted, yeah. which is fair. Yeah, but I think they sh you should get some extra points because if you're <laughs> doing guided recovery, that's not the same level as parachute other teams are doing. <laughs> I mean, we were hoping sort of for an, maybe an innovations prize or yeah. something, yeah. but they didn't give out any innovation or technical prizes this year, mm -hmm. which is a bit sad or a bit yeah. disappointing in my opinion, because yeah. I think these sorts of competition, they should really foster it as like, innovative spirit or yeah. like trying something new instead of just having the perfect mission right so i think for next year i think we also gave that a, as a feedback to the competition okay it would be really cool to have yes yeah, sort of prizes or anything that you give out to, to teams who try something new and yeah yeah totally take a risk sense. obviously the project has demonstrated that it can actually bring down real rocket from the sky now what is in the future path for Perifas. So currently, the team Bernoulli, mm -hmm. 
which is our most recent rocket team that's currently building the most yeah the newest rocket for ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're actually integrating the guided recovery system in the rocket, mm-hmm. flying it at Europe again in 2023. Yep. And this year they combined it with our hybrid rocket engines mm-hmm. uh, that we have flown on previous rockets. Right. So these are in-house developed rocket engines. We flew a commercial off-the-shelf solid motor yeah. at Uruk with Periflus just because yeah our goal was to demonstrate the guided descent. We right. didn't really care how we got to Apogee. Yeah, right. <laughs> so just, yeah, everything to get us up there. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, now we really want to combine the, the our own engine with our own guided recovery system, make a very fancy rocket out yes. of it, basically. Mm-hmm. So this is a big challenge because, again, you further want to reduce weight, you want to reduce size, yeah. because otherwise you'll end up with an 8-meter rocket at some point, mm-hmm. um, which isn't beneficial at all. And then we also have a more long-term project, Mm -hmm. Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Odyssey is meant to go to the 100 kilometer line, which is the Kármán line, and basically it's the the gateway to space. Mm -hmm. And they're also currently planning on flying a guided recovery system on Mm -hmm. that rocket. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it will be continued within the RS rockets for future projects gotcha. and hopefully further developed as well. Yeah, so you kind of like, I guess you, you're you still kind of involved in helping them out and making sure that like your knowledge gets delivered and your documents and code exactly, and everything yeah. gets... To- yeah, exactly. We work as technical advisors for them. Yeah. So yeah, in, in case they need, we will go on Zoom calls with them, mm-hmm. help them out. However, we or all 10 of us really had to say like after this super intense year, mm-hmm. we also need to focus. Yeah, n- now lots of us are in internships. So mm-hmm. you work, I moved away from Zurich yeah. for my internship. Mm-hmm. So you're not really around anymore. And we try to be there as much as we can mm-hmm. um, and help them, but we're not currently or not actively working on the guided recovery system anymore. Gotcha, yeah. I mean, that's for the next team members. So. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm super glad that this is going to continue because, yeah, I can just imagine how crazy innovative it can get if you actually get the system to the next level. I mean, your project was already very, like, cool, but, like, you can always iterate upon yeah, that and yeah. I can just imagine what it's I going think to be. there is a, it's a good base, but there is lots of possibilities, especially mm-hmm. with things like the T-approach, which you can really improve the system. Right. And I think, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So... I want to like dive a bit into your personal side. So mm-hmm. you were actually involved with ours even before the um, Perifas mm-hmm. in Picard uh, project and like you were doing it and I mean acro- like like along with your project and then you ended up doing a focus project so like it must have been a lot of stuff to handle like studies as well as projects and how how was it for you like I mean was it manageable because you were very interested in it mm-hmm. or did you have like hard times? I mean, the hard times do come when you get closer to the exams right. <laughs> and you suddenly have to catch up with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I must say the PCAR, the PCAR project was a bit less time intense just because mm-hmm. they were all freelancer. Mm-hmm. So in Focus Project, you'd really work full-time on right. it. Uh, yeah. More than a full-time job, really. Mm-hmm. But uh, and during the PCAR project, I would still have, a, I don't know, two, three days a week where I would study yeah. and then the rest I would spend on the project. Gotcha. Okay. So it was doable. Mm-hmm. You learn how to be very efficient with your time, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a, quite a good skill to have. Yeah. And you also learn a lot about how you study, mm-hmm. what you actually need. Is, is this really going to 
improve my studying or can I just skip this and instead like do it some other time for example for me lots of lectures they go through their script mm -hmm. but I realized that if I read the script instead I read a lot faster than the professor can talk oh, okay. <laughs> you know yeah. just naturally so yeah. it's actually more time efficient for me to read the script if the professor like tells you exactly that yeah. and then rather spend more time on exercises for example gotcha okay. so you kind of figure out what works for you yeah also, you learn so much during the project that I think it's really worth going through the extra effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I extended my studies for half a year mm -hmm. um, just because during the focus project, I really did not have time to do my thesis, yeah. a bachelor thesis. Mm -hmm. I did all my other credits. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, that worked out well. But then, yeah, last semester, I just worked on my thesis yeah. because I also wanted to yeah, put some effort into that and really... Yeah, work on Was it. Was it related to the Perifax project? No, not no. at all. <laughs> it's very okay. different. And uh, you said like your main like fascination and passion is in aerospace engineering. Mm -hmm. Like how like how, were there stories from your like youth that like kind of shows that you're interested in from the beginning or like what led you to this path? To be honest, it sort of just happened. <laughs> I was never the one to be, I mean, I was always interested, I was very curious about a lot of things, mm -hmm. but it was never that this was like my hobby since I was growing up. Mm -hmm. So I started realizing that my passion lies within engineering, math, physics throughout my high school. Yeah. And this is also why I started mechanical engineering, but only once I started, I realized like how fascinated that I actually am with aerospace. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, yeah, just, I think I've always been interested in the universe, mm -hmm. the whole infinity what might be out there it's so mm -hmm. big and we really have right. no clue actually yes. right and i think that that sort of idea has always fascinated me mm -hmm. and that that there's so much out there to to find right and yeah and then i sort of came in contact with with aerospace and then it was like well this sort of combines my interest mm -hmm. in engineering and yeah. the fascination for space right right and so i got into it and after this day i'm yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah. Um, also, my internship is now in aviation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think making something fly is very fascinating to mm -hmm. me. I mean, lots of people <laughs> will probably disagree with me, but I think like a car, you know, it rolls, it's okay, right? whatever. But like making something fly that's mm -hmm. not supposed to fly, I think that's the real challenge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that lots of people would disagree yeah. on this one, but yeah. Well, those people wouldn't work on Perifest. Probably not. <laughs> But that's super cool. Uh, so like you were involved in arts like after realizing like, oh, like I like aerospace, you got into arts, you started mm -hmm. with Picard project and then you move on to Perifus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> and how, how is it like, because arts was like the base for the whole project, like mm -hmm. your whole uh, majority of your bachelor's life mm -hmm. as well. Like what is it like being an arts? Like what's like the team dynamic and what kind of activities do you do? And yeah, how is it in arts? That's a very good question. It's really fun. Mm -hmm. I enjoy it a lot. So ours has grown quite a lot. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, the association now holds over 400 members, actually. Mm -hmm. Up to this day, a lot of them are alumni, but over 170 are in active projects or something. Yeah. No, wait, I need to... Over 150 yeah. are in active projects, oh, I wow. think, okay. around that number. So yeah, and I think once you're in the RS family, you get to meet so many cool people mm -hmm. that are like-minded. I mean, some of us are super into aerospace some of us are just they like a cool engineering challenge yeah. and both of them are fine yeah. 
we have different events all the time. So mm -hmm. some events might be team internal. So yeah. you know how we have different teams. Some of them build rockets, some of them build cube sets or mm -hmm. underwater vehicles or engines, all sorts of things really. Right. And so obviously you have team internal things. So we already had lots of team events and everything. Yeah. But then you have RS wide events as well. So I think in like two weeks we go bowling mm -hmm. uh, or sometimes there are skiing days mm -hmm. or there used to be or generally just out in Dubendorf if you're there some people pull out the barbecue yeah. you have a few beers together you yeah. grill something super chill nice. and your network is so big that actually if you walk through Zurich anywhere mm -hmm. really you'll meet someone <laughs> from ours yeah. which is a lot of fun mm -hmm. and some of my best friends are from RS these mm -hmm. days so yeah yeah yesterday I literally saw in a tram stop a guy with RS like shirt or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're yes. everywhere yes they're everywhere <laughs> it's an amazing team yeah, yeah I can definitely recommend joining yes to yeah. anyone really <laughs> yes like RS is amazing <laughs> so <laughs> you know so you you mentioned that, uh, you would like to discuss about women in STEM so like like what the environment and like what what it's like being a woman in STEM field because yeah I thought maybe it's like an important topic as well mm -hmm. because for example yeah I was I was on the team with nine nine young men and then afterwards 15 young men mm -hmm. so yeah as you know in, in engineering or most of people in engineering know that uh, not a lot of women are there it's probably around 10% right usually mm -hmm. and I think this can be super intimidating for young girls because right. I know how intimidating it was for me mm -hmm. back then and so I try to yeah you know just share my story and that yeah. it's actually worth going into it mm -hmm. because I think sometimes it needs a bit of confidence mm -hmm. if you just look at the group and yeah it's all men then right. yeah sometimes it can be lonely yes. but mm -hmm. I think for example, in high school, I was I was I had to choose sort of like a focus um, if I want to go more into biology and chemistry or in physics and math. Yeah. And I was sort of on the fence because I was both interested very much in biology and in physics. Mm -hmm. And then honestly, all my friends or all my girlfriends they chose biology and chemistry, mm -hmm. and I was the only girl out of the whole year of oh. my high school. Yeah to choose physics so so I didn't right mm -hmm. I chose biology okay and I was terribly unhappy after half a year yeah. <laughs> so I talked to my teachers and I was actually able to switch fortunately mm -hmm. and so I continued as just like the small 14 year old girl that I was in a group of nine boys again mm -hmm. in physics and math and yeah. yeah it was intimidating at first yeah but you sort of grow into it and you develop a sort of a confidence mm -hmm. that really helps yeah, and I think it's just really important. My my learning from this is that like, if it's really your passion, mm -hmm. it it shouldn't be something that's in your way. Or it's sad if right. that is something that's in your way, but especially if you're young and in your teenage year, it can be. Right. So yeah, I really hope that the young girls these days are confident yeah. enough to go into STEM. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> As the final section, we have like intuition question section where. Okay. You have to answer within one minute, ideally even less than 10 seconds, about like what you think about it so that we can test your intuition. Okay. <laughs> and I brought six different questions, so mm -hmm. I'll start questioning you. First, what is on your bucket list? Travel the world. I would love to go to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. That's on my bucket list at the gotcha. moment. So I hope to go there during summer. 
Got it. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I have a little break. All so right. that, that sounds good. I'm planning something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What advice would you give to yourself in high school? Follow the path that you're most interested in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just follow your ambitions and your passions. Yeah. What gets you out of bed most mornings? My coffee machine. I can't <laughs> function without it. Yeah. Okay. What is the coolest thing that you learned in the past month? In the past month, everything about an aircraft, basically. Mm -hmm. I started my internship two months ago. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about aircraft, really. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much. I can't even tell you like a specific part, to be honest. <laughs> you learned so much. <laughs> it was just, okay. yeah, an incredible amount. Yeah, got it. So aircrafts. Aircrafts, yeah. everything about aircrafts. Um, do you have an idol or a person that you look up to? I got to meet Thomas Zurbuchen, mm -hmm. the ex-NASA mission director, yeah. and I think he's a very interesting person. Mm -hmm. And he said something that really stuck with me, yeah. and it's, I don't know where he said that, I think it was in some interview, mm -hmm. that, you sh or that he never stays on, on a job for more than seven years, mm -hmm. because after seven years you don't learn as much and you mm -hmm. get too comfortable. And right. I think that's a very interesting approach. Mm -hmm. He came from this yeah. very small town and yeah. he ended up at NASA, and I mean, I think for everybody who's in aerospace, NASA is probably like the dream. <laughs> so yeah, he's yeah. a, isn't it? interesting person all right last one airplanes or rockets rockets probably mm -hmm. <laughs> all right. sounds good rockets I think. <laughs> okay yeah very so, tough one though <laughs> yeah i can sense that you were hesitating a bit so that's cool we are officially at the end all the question sets are complete but how can people find more about You, Aris, Perifus. Yeah, so we have a website, mm -hmm. aris-space.com, or CH, I can't actually not tell you. Aris-space, and it will pop up in Google. Yeah. There is also an Instagram channel that you can follow where we'll also have, we'll post all our events. Sometimes yeah. we also hold recruiting events if people are interested in joining. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, you can really just feel free to contact on the Aris website. I think it also has my email on it. Mm -hmm. So in case anyone has questions yep. or LinkedIn, mm -hmm. just feel free to contact All right. and I'd be happy to answer any questions. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. I'll link them all below so that you can check it out. Thank you again Anna, for coming on board and sharing this incredible story. And yeah, thank you listeners as well and see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow or subscribe to the show on whatever platform you use. And don't forget to share this podcast with anyone interested in entrepreneurship, university student life, and the rising minds and technologies of the future before they change the world. <laughs>